to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So I've historically not been a morning person. I'm not like grumpy in the morning per se, but I am definitely not chipper. Although one might argue in general that I'm not a particularly vivacious or bubbly person, um, but in the morning, I'm particularly not so. I would still rather be asleep or at least snuggled in my nice warm bed, especially as like the temperature drops. Um, it's very nice to be in a warm bed, preferably with my sexy warm husband to butt up against. In high school, my mom very kindly would wake me up every morning, but I was so difficult to wake up and keep awake that she resorted to literally like pulling me into a sitting position and flipping the light on so that I wouldn't just slip back into slumber. And our firstborn, Roland, takes after me. Um, He could and does sleep all morning. And he gets out of bed with that classic furrowed Miller brow. Not quite sure he wants to engage with the world quite yet. Look at those eyes. (laughs) Um, But our secondborn, Aiden, this is very indicative of his personality. He's not at all like me. I don't know whose body he came out of because it couldn't have been mine. Every morning, he tiptoes into our bedroom as soon as the sun peeks over the horizon with the biggest, most mischievous and infectious grin on his face. You know, as if he's like being sneaky coming into mommy and daddy's room. And then he takes a running leap into our covers and wriggles between us, snuggling his cold baby body up to me. And then he smiles at me and says, good morning, mommy, I awake. Yes, sweet boy, yes, you are. Aiden approaches all of life with equal zest and exuberance. He laughs and he screams and he cackles. He runs faster than his toddler coordination can handle and is constantly sporting some scrape or some bruise. Um, If you look carefully, you can see that his tooth is chipped, already at two and a half years old um, from falling on his face. Whenever we put food on his plate, he says an audible, mmm, that looked good. They should not rank our children, but people definitely have favorites. Um, and Aiden is the clear front runner. His joy and passion is infectious, and you can't help but laugh and have a good time when Aiden is around. Now, one of Aiden's favorite activities is to be tickled. Our other two children I would call socially ticklish. Um, they will obligatorily laugh when you tickle them, um, but it was definitely a learned behavior. They are not naturally ticklish, but Aiden is incredibly ticklish. Just the thought of someone potentially tickling him starts him giggling. And in that sweet childlike way that kids have, he wants to do it over and over and over. He loves being tickled so much that he will come up to you and ask you, tickle me. Literally, when I was writing this very paragraph, he came up to me with his sweet smile and said, mommy, I run away and you tickle me. (laughs) I appreciate he asks for what he wants and needs. Um, And when you tickle him, he will yell, stop. But then as soon as you stop, he yells, do it again. Do it again, mama, do it again. Over and over and over, his appetite, appetite for joy is endless. And I think that this is why people gravitate towards Aiden, um, because that joy is contagious and it feels really, really good to laugh. But somewhere along the meandering road from childhood to briefcases and rent, we often lose some of this exuberant abandoned joy. 
Maybe it's because we've hit a couple bumps and gotten some bruises. Or we've been there, done that. This road isn't new and exciting anymore. It's the same old rut, the same old scenery, same old people. We've got bigger things to worry about now than whether or not you'll have kicks or Cheerios for breakfast and if you'll get to go to the park today. We grow up. We have to be serious. We have to take care of things. We know life isn't so bright and shiny. That sort of joy and silliness just isn't realistic anymore. We live in this weird tension of being grown-ups and bearing the weight of the world, um, but still being attracted to and aching for joy. What do people always say that they want in life? To be happy, to experience joy, to have a life that is full of more than just anxiety and drudgery in the mundane. But despite wanting for and craving joy, many of us find it elusive in our own lives. We see the spark of it when we tickle Aiden and when he cackles as we chase him around the house. But where's the joy in my day? My going to work, my doing the dishes, my paying another bill, my fight with my husband, my social isolation, and the hurting of the people that I care about, my friends, our nation. Is it possible to still have joy when we know so much? when we've carried so much pain and hardship. In this series, we're exploring both joy and pain and recognizing the crucial roles that both aspects of the emotional spectrum have in our humanity. Both sides are critical to our relationships, to ourselves and God. And Tyler is going to dive next week into the sorrow and mourning side, but today we're pushing into joy because we all ache for joy. We long for joy. And it is possible to have that sort of childlike joy in our lives right here, right now. So why do we long for joy? Why do we want to be happy? Well, it feels good. Chemically, it makes your brain and your body zing. Um, you know, those special little hormones called endorphins firing everywhere. It feels good to laugh. It feels good to boogie and dance. It feels good to drink wine and party and eat cheesecake. Playing feels good. Joy feels good. It's no wonder that we want more of it in our lives. But why does joy feel good? In his book, The Screwtape Letters, the author and theologian C.S. Lewis gives us a hint when he describes joy. Now, if you haven't read this book before, um, just a little explanation. It's written from the perspective of a mature mentor demon named Screwtape, and he's advising his young nephew how to properly ensnare humans to hell. So a slight shift in mind frame. Um, but here's what the demon Screwtape says about laughter and joy. I divide the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first, joy, among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided, but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time show that they are not the real cause. What the real cause is, we do not know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art which the humans call music, and something like it occurs in heaven, a meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience. Joy feels good because joy feels like heaven. It feels like being in the presence of God. The psalmist says this, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Joy feels good because it's what being in God's presence feels like. And our souls ache and long for God. 
This is why we seek out joy, why we're attracted to joy, because ultimately what we're searching for is God himself. His presence is joy. Being with him is all pleasure. Heaven, the realm where God's will is done and everything meets with his eternal delight is joy. Now this idea might feel a little weird to you. Maybe you've never thought about God and heaven and joy that way. God is all pleasure. Isn't that a little sacrilegious? Um, lots of people feel kind of uncomfortable with the idea of God and pleasure together. And this might be because historically the Christian church has approached joy and pleasure with a 10 foot pole. Dancing, probably of the devil. Drinking, also probably of the devil. Being happy, definitely suspect, if not downright sinful. Puritans were not a cheerful bunch. And um, 1980s America had some weird hangups with dancing. Though we're generally okay with dancing at this point, the historic church's negative stance towards pleasure wasn't coming out of nowhere. Again, the demon screw tape affirms that pursuing pleasure can be an excellent way to lead people into sin and ultimately hell. But he also cautions his mentee. Never forget that when we are dealing with pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. And by enemy, he means God here. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker and least pleasurable. So while the pursuit or misuse of pleasure can be dangerous, pleasure is actually God's invention. Laughing, God's invention. Chocolate, God's invention. Dancing, God's invention. Parties, also God's invention. Sex, God's invention. Orgasms, definitely God's invention. That's right, orgasms on Sunday, you guys. Joy and pleasure are inherently good because they were created and made up by a good, joyful, pleasurable God. Like Screwtape said, pleasure is on God's ground. Pleasure only becomes problematic when we twist, pervert, misuse, or misvalue something that is good and beautiful and healthy and normal that God created. And the Bible affirms that pleasure and joy are from God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift, like orgasms, like chocolate. And here's what Ecclesiastes says about it. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Being happy, enjoying your food and work and life, these are gifts from God. Author and professor Dallas Willard writes, we dishonor God as much by fearing and avoiding pleasure as we do by dependence upon it or living for it. Because good, healthy pleasure is a gift from God. Do you guys know how many feasts are commanded in the Old Testament? These are annual things. Every year you are supposed to feast this many times. Any guesses? Well, in America, we have Easter, Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving, that's coming up. 
maybe 4th of July? I don't know, four feasts? No, seven. There are seven annual Old Testament feasts commanded in the law of Leviticus. And these aren't just one day affairs. Look at this. On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees and willows that grow by the streams, i.e. decorate. This is my justification for all of my Christmas decorations. Then celebrate with joy before the Lord your God for seven days. Seven days, a week of feasting and celebrating and decorating too. God cares about beauty. He made beauty. Can you imagine taking seven weeks out of each year? That's almost two whole months to just celebrate and feast before God. God cares so much about us living out and experiencing the joy of his presence that he writes these seven week long celebrations into his law. Not just don't kill people or don't steal things, but you must feast. God loves joy. Our joy and pleasure and God's good and beautiful gifts is a worship of the giver of those gifts. Your laughter, your love of an excellent mustard barbecue sauce, your decorations you hang up in your home, these can all be worship of God. You might be thinking, yeah, that's the Old Testament. Does that still apply? It's all over the New Testament, baby. Guess what people call Jesus? God incarnate when he embodied the human experience a glutton and a drunkard. Now, you don't earn the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard by not feasting and drinking at least a little bit. God himself partied. God himself drank wine. God himself feasted and celebrated with others. And Jesus's very first miracle here on earth was not healing someone or curing leprosy, controlling nature, casting out demons. His first miracle was a party where he turned gallons and gallons of water into the most delicious wine people had ever had. John tells us this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Jesus chose to first reveal his glory, not at a funeral, not on the ocean, not at the temple, though he will do all of those things as well, but at a celebration with wine, the best wine, in a place of joy, feasting, togetherness, and celebration. This is where Jesus chooses to first reveal his glory because God's presence is joy. Living with him is all pleasure. Our God is a God of good gifts, of laughter, of celebration, of feasting. And when we ache for joy, when we taste joy, we are experiencing heaven, the presence of God himself. Engaging with and experiencing true joy is one of the ways that we can connect deeply with God. This is the admonishment the demon screw tape gives to his subordinate when the younger demon foolishly allows his human subject to go for a walk and read a book that he really liked. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant as not to see the danger of this? The characteristic of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. Experiencing joy and pleasure ground us in reality. And because God is ultimate truth and reality, joy and pleasure are a touchstone of God. Think about laughter or eating something really, really delicious, like a good steak or chocolate or having an orgasm. You have to be so present, so in the moment to experience the goodness and joy. 
if you're distracted by election results, or your mind is thinking about your to-do list, or you're stressed and or worried or upset about tomorrow or today, it's really hard to stay connected to the present experience and experience God's joy. And I think that's why joy is often so easy for little children, because they are so incredibly present. This moment, this is what's real. This is where time touches eternity, where the acceleration of the celestial experience is felt, where heaven bleeds into earth, where God's presence is joy. Joy doesn't just feel good because it's intrinsically connected to the goodness and reality of God, but joy also is good for us because it connects us to God. When we choose to feast and celebrate and laugh and whoop, we are worshiping a holy and good God and experiencing heaven itself. Now, heaven is more than just the presence of God. Jesus calls us to love God and love others. And joy doesn't just deeply connect us to God, but it also deeply connects us to others. So this past Sunday, we had staff over to our house for dinner. And we were trying to be, you know, like very serious and connect with God through silence, which is very important. Silence is good for our souls, good for our walk with God. Um, But our boys didn't get the memo. Roland started feeling funny about something and started giggling. And then Aiden caught the joy bug and started giggling. And once Aiden gets started, you know, it's hard to stop. Then Catherine wanted in on the action and she started doing her little fake baby laugh. And all of us adults were trying to be serious around the table with our eyes closed, deep in contemplative prayer. All of us except our friend Jacob, of course. He was literally shaking with laughter, his hands covering his face, trying to hide it. And we lost it. We all burst out laughing. Um, And that was perhaps a much more holy moment than what we were trying to do because joy and laughter bond us to God and to each other. Paul says in Philippians, yes, you should rejoice and I will share in your joy. Joyful people are fun to be around. Their joy is contagious. You can't not share joy. And you feel more intimate and connected with people that you share joy with. Inside jokes, that's the bonding of joy. Our one-year-old Catherine has just begun to realize the power of the social laugh. She doesn't get the joke, but she wants in on the togetherness. So now when we laugh, she laughs too. Ha, 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 ha. Her eyes darting from happy face to happy face checking. Yes, we are all in this together. We are sharing this experience. We are sharing this joy. And Pastor John Arpberg argues that people who are skilled at intimacy look for opportunities to create joy for other people because it's bonding. Just like it can bond us to God, it can bond us to others as well. How do you create joy for other people? Sharing hilarious cat videos? Obviously. This one still gets me every time. If you haven't seen it, look it up. Our friend Elizabeth, who has met our son Roland maybe once, recently saw him wearing a dinosaur shirt on a Zoom call. Do you like dinosaurs, she asked Roland. Roland clearly replied in the affirmative. Um, So she spontaneously sent him a package of dinosaur cookie cutters, and Roland was over the moon, joy for days. Elizabeth is excellent at creating joy for others. People who are skilled at intimacy look for opportunities to create joy for others. And when we are joyful people, our joy overflows. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. Joy inherently overflows 
is contagious, infectious, and not only improves our lives, but the lives of others. A scientific study in psychology today found that joyful people are more compassionate. They are more financially generous. They have more and deeper friendships. They are more likely to stay married. They are more resilient in hardship, and they have a greater vitality and zest for life. We ache for and long for joy because joy is being in God's presence. Joy is connecting deeply with others. Joy makes our lives richer and more satisfying and overflows into the lives of others and into our world. Joy is God here on earth. But life isn't happy clappy all the time. Um, We know this. It's part of growing up and becoming an adult. Bad things happen. You lose your job. You go through a breakup and your whole future shifts. You struggle under the weight of anxiety or depression. Your boss doesn't value you or treat you with dignity. Your children are mistreated or they suffer or they're abused. You get the diagnosis. Your friend is raped. Your mother dies. Really, really bad things happen. There's a reason that joy is elusive for you. There's a reason celebration is hard. And part of you feels like pursuing joy and being joyful is invalidating all of the actually really difficult and challenging things in your life. Am I just supposed to ignore the bad things that happen and pretend like everything is so wonderful? Am I just supposed to suck it up and smile through the pain and the sorrow? No. Just as Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes reminds us that it is good to enjoy our life and work and food as gifts from God. It also reminds us that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. This is why this is not the only week in this series. Next week, we will dive deeply into weeping and mourning. But I want to acknowledge here that celebration does not exist in isolation without the balance of mourning, lament, and sorrow. Both are crucial aspects of the human experience, our emotional world and the world around us. Choosing joy is not the same as choosing to turn a blind eye to suffering or or difficulty in life. It is not ignoring the very real and painful things that happen and God does not ask us to do that. Instead, choosing joy is a way of choosing the narrative that we frame our lives in. In Cuba, we spent the week with a man named Oscar, um, and this is him building a singing castle with my son Roland on the beach. So in Cuba, it's a communist government, and the government is your life. They control everything. Um, they are have 90% of the jobs. Um, they make or break you. And Oscar worked in the cabinet of Fidel Castro um, as a very important government official. When his first son was born and sick, the cabinet minister took Oscar's son to the hospital and told the staff, you will save this boy. He lived on the same street as all the other high up officials in a big house. He was respected and powerful. He had it made. But then Oscar met Christ. And it is not okay to be a Christian in Cuba. When Oscar committed his life to Christ, he wasn't just intellectually assenting to life with God. It potentially meant losing his life. Oscar talked about how people would go into Castro's office and then never be seen again. And when he became a Christian, it was a very real possibility that he would be called into Castro's office and never be seen again. 
When people began to get suspicious about Oscar's new faith, he was lucky. Because of his wife's family ties in the government, Oscar wasn't executed. He was only fired. He didn't lose his life, but because he was a Christian, he lost his job. And because he was a Christian, he lost his house. And because he was a Christian, his family cut him off and refused to speak to him. He and his wife and their baby son moved into a shack on the river. And when the river flooded, Oscar would wake up in the morning and sink his feet ankle deep into water. He would hold his shoes over his head and walk to find work. And he would say, God is good to me. I've never met a man with more joy than Oscar. And it's not because his life was so happy, clappy and free from sorrow and trouble. Externally, his life was incredibly difficult and hard. But joy is not dependent on circumstance. Joy is not dependent on the sorrows and hardships or lack thereof in life. Oscar's deep and penetrating joy was an intentional perspective on his life that came from intentionally recognizing the good and beauty of God in the midst of darkness. Joy is not made by everything going right. Joy is not our external circumstances. Joy is the internal perspective and posture we choose to take to our eternal external circumstances. Joy is the orientation to God in the midst of the valley and shadow, the touchstone of reality of God's goodness and care despite what's going on around us. Joy does not require a lack of suffering. In fact, true joy is most often developed and cultivated and strengthened in suffering. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. This verse is hard for me um, because this is not my natural response to troubles. I don't often think when my children are screaming or my work is crazy stressful or I'm being mistreated, ah, this is a great opportunity for me to be joyful. I sometimes wish that this verse said something different, something more along the lines of when troubles come your way, fix it or get angry or be cynical or be really bitter and frustrated about your lot or internalize how hard and unfair your life is and dwell on that. But that's not what God says. God says, consider it an opportunity for not just joy, great joy. And this is the key to joy. Consider is a thinking word. It's talking about a mind frame, an internal perspective. God is not saying that suffering and troubles are joy. He's saying that it is an opportunity for joy because while you may not be able to control your external circumstances and the legitimately bad and crappy things that happen in your life and to those you love and in our world, you can control how you choose to write your internal narrative. You can consider, you can make it an opportunity. You can shift your focus and your dwelling and narrative from the negative to the hidden gifts that God has woven into your life. You can choose joy like Oscar, waking up in a shack in ankle deep water, cut off from his family, his position, his former life, and say, God is good to me. Dallas Willard reminds us, celebration hardly done makes our deprivations and sorrows seem small. 
and we find in it great strength to do the will of our God because his goodness becomes so real to us. So how can we do this? We've talked about choosing joy, but can we actually choose joy? Aren't you either an optimist or a pessimist and really only those optimistic people can choose joy? But God tells all of us to choose joy. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. This is not only optimists rejoice or only Aidens of the world rejoice. This is for all of us. We may not be able to control our external circumstances or even whether our emotions are inherently sad or happy, but we can invest in disciplines that incline our hearts towards joy. Becoming a person of joy takes practice, just like any other skill. What's nice about this is because it's a practice, that means that anyone can get good at it, not just Aidens. I am by nature more of a depressive sort of person. And so it's good for me that my capacity for joy is not limited to my makeup. I can practice. I can get better. I can develop the skill of joy. And so can you, regardless of how full or empty you look at your cup. So the practice I wanna propose to you is something that we've kind of been like hinting at through this whole message. It's a discipline of celebration. Now, normally you think of the spiritual disciplines like fasting or prayer or service, and those are all excellent disciplines to develop different aspects of our character and walk with God. But to develop our joy muscles, this is the one we need. We need the discipline of celebration. And if you're worried about doing this, like this doesn't sound very spiritual, this is a very biblical discipline. Do you remember how God clearly commands us to celebrate, i.e. seven week-long feasts mandated in Old Testament law? God knows that choosing joy is hard for us, so he mandates a lot of practice through the intentional discipline of celebration. And celebration is the discipline. It requires intentional effort and reorienting our heart to recognize God's gifts and goodness, especially when they aren't overtly apparent. It takes intention and skill to be fully present, to experience joy, to consistently thank and praise the giver of those gifts. We have to celebrate, to train our hearts to reorient towards joy, to reorient towards the presence of God and his gifts. How do we celebrate? Dallas Willard says, we engage in celebration when we enjoy ourselves, our life, our world, in conjunction with our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and goodness. We concentrate on our life and world as God's work and as God's gift to us. How do we celebrate? We enjoy and we orient our perspective Now, every moment of every day, we have the choice to enjoy and orient. And at first, with your kind of weak joy muscles, tackling every moment of every day is probably a bit of a stretch. So we're gonna start small. What is a small hardship that you know that comes up regularly in your life? Is it annoyance at doing dishes? Maybe your children inevitably screaming and fighting again. Maybe it's wearing a mask eight hours a day at work, um, breathing your own breath and having your glasses fog up. What is something small that you can practice your joy muscles with? Identify your small regular annoyance and then practice your orientation. How is God good in the midst of this? What are God's gifts woven into hardship? Dishes? Thank you, God, that I have food to dirty dishes with. Thank you, God, for feeding me every day. 
Thank you, God, for the gift of running water, running hot water, screaming children. Thank you, God, that my children's lungs are healthy. Thank you for the joy of getting to be at home with them. Thank you that they like each other enough to want to play together, which sometimes leads to fights. Wearing a mask all day. Thank you, God, for modern medicine. Thank you for the gift of work and providing for my family. Thank you for my coworkers who I love and am caring for by wearing my mask. Now, this isn't just undermining small hardships, but instead choosing to reorient. Start small. Lift baby weights with your heart, using these hardships that come your way as an opportunity to choose joy, to seek God in the midst of them. Now, these small practices will increase your capacity for joy and prepare you for lifting the heavier sorrows of life. But the best celebration practice to invest in, in my opinion, is Sabbath. Best day of the week, every week. Sabbath is one day a week that God again commands us to celebrate. Do not do any work. Do not be productive or efficient or good at stuff. Just stop, just be, and play. Isn't that crazy? Our God commands us to stop and play one day a week, every single week. But many of us feel really hesitant about that. You're like, I don't have time. That's not really important. I'm just too busy to Sabbath. But God thinks joy is important. Important enough to command you to stop every week for one whole day just to practice. Sabbath consistently and intentionally practiced vastly increases our capacity to choose joy. I read somewhere that Sabbath is like a small taste of heaven and that if you can't enjoy Sabbath, you're not going to enjoy heaven very much. Can you stop? Can you play? Can you romp and frisk and gamble in the glades? I'm sure many of us used to run unabashedly around our house growing up, buck naked with a towel streaming behind us, squealing with joy. And maybe that's just my children. Um, But we're often uncomfortable with this totally abandoned, ridiculous sort of all in joy as adults. But wild joy isn't just for children, it's for adults too. In the book of 2 Samuel, King David dances in front of God with all of his might. And a lot of terms the Bible uses around celebration and practices of joy are very energetic and are very loud. There's eating and drinking and dancing and shouting and blowing horns, which are not quiet. There's skipping, there's laughing, there's leaping. When's the last time you leaped? When's the last time that you were like really loud, like socially inappropriately loud? Anyway, David is heartily celebrating and full to bursting with joy in God's presence. But his wife, Michal, is not impressed. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Sometimes we take this attitude towards joy. Sometimes what keeps us from embracing and choosing joy is our own pride. Joy is childlike. It's not always graceful or dignified or impressive. Aiden snorts when he laughs. I snort when I laugh. Um, You might look silly dancing or be too excited about something little, but the cost we are paying for our own self-importance, our image, our cynicism is joy. David retorted to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, 
And I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Are you willing to embrace the indignity of joy? And recently, our family has started playing a very complex game called Chicka Piglets. Here it is. It's about um, animal hybrids like Clear the Cam Bear or Wilma the Rhine Owl. Our boys love it, and Ryan and I get to choose whether or not we embrace the indignity of joy or we squelch the joy. So we've decided to do high fives over avoiding cow pies, and we do victory dances around the table when we find a match. McCall may be filled with contempt, but we embrace the connectedness of joy to each other and to God, embracing the present moment and falling into the sometimes scary, undignified experience of joy. Practicing joy can feel uncomfortable for us. It is often easier to adopt this cynical, like, oh, I'm too good for that sort of attitude, to lean away from the childlike, unabashed, unashamed freedom of play and joy. You will look silly. You will feel silly. Maybe you haven't danced since your junior prom. Maybe you haven't whooped or yelled or leapt since you were on the playground. Maybe you haven't gotten really excited about something silly since Pokemon. And I realized when I was writing this, I was thinking of Pokemon as in the old card game, but now it's actually a thing that people still get excited about as adults. <laughs> so, bad example. But anyway, dance, yell, get excited, look silly, be undignified, practice joy. And in many ways, choosing joy is becoming a child again. Aiden doesn't have to practice joy. He's a natural. Being a ticklish two-year-old helps. Um, but it is this childlike joy and gratitude and the praise of the good gifts and life that God is inviting us into. Jesus reminds us, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, the meaningless acceleration of the celestial experience, the joy of being in God's presence comes from a childlike wonder and appreciation for the small gifts. In her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Boskamp tells the story of her aunt coming to visit and playing ball with her little daughter who was about to. And they simply rolled the ball back and forth and her daughter was just ecstatic. Weeks later, my aunt sent a letter from a far-flung hotel stamped in some post office on the other side of the ocean. It was her looping, aching epiphany that scrawled me deep. I will never forget your daughter's wild joy in that ball, a happiness like I've never seen in all my travels through all these years and in the simplest of experiences. I never forgot the child joy of that afternoon. Yes, otherworldly joy like that, the kind you could search the whole world over and find only in a child. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a celebration of a wedding or a baby being born or a promotion. It's the wonder of the small. The perspective of a child that perceives this ball, this tickle, this Oreo, this day as the greatest gift of the moment. When we choose to practice celebration, reorient our hearts and narratives towards the reality of God and his goodness, joy blossoms. And God has so many good gifts. He wants you to taste and see if you have the eyes of a child to delight in them. There's so many good gifts. John Orberg talks about God's delight in delighting us. And he talks about the craziness of the sunrise. Like, have you ever stopped to think about that before? God could have designed the world any way that he wanted, but he designed it so that every day, every month, every year, the sun would come up again. 
and again, and again, and again. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful. Do it again. Do it again, God. Another sunrise, another sunrise, another gift, another plate of food, another good sleep, another good morning, mommy, from your two-year-old. God never gets tired of tickling us, of delighting us, of bringing us into the joy of his presence. We just have to be like Aiden and say, do it again, mommy. Do it again, God. The joy of God's presence is right here, all around us. We just need to practice the art of celebration, choosing to become like children, delighting in this day, this moment, this chance to taste God's goodness. Do it again, God. Do it again. Let's pray. God, you're so good. Um, And sometimes we just let go of that, Lord, and we get so caught up in the work that we're doing, um, the kind of like mundane tasks of life, the hardship and the pain and the sorrow, which is real. Um, But we don't want to let that distract from your goodness, Lord, and letting that be so real to us. Um, Please help us to practice the art of celebration, God. And you know how bad we are at joy, how bad we are at like continuing to reorient to you and your presence, which is joy. Um, So I thank you for giving us the command to play, to delight, to stop and be joyful, God. Um, And I pray that we lean into that this week, Lord, that we embrace the indignity of being joyful, that we become okay like being like little children, Lord, Um, and just experiencing the goodness of this life that you've given us. You are so good, God. We love you so much. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.